So every area, every opportunity of trust, uh, we're going to take it and see how do we elevate the brand? How do we mm-hmm. um, how do we gain the customer's trust? Because in the Middle East, a lot of people actually want their money outside of it. They're not really looking at local banks as an end goal. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Rise of the Next. It's Shreen with you. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Mark Shahwan, who is the co-founder and CEO of Serwa and was recently recognized by Forbes Middle East as one of the 50 most funded startups in the Middle East. On today's episode, I discuss with Mark the evolution of Serwa, from its early days offering passive portfolio options to its customers through Serwa Invest, Serwa Crypto, and Serwa Trade, three very different products that we'll cover in today's episode. We also discuss what it takes to build a high-growth fintech company in the Middle East and why trust is a key factor. I do hope you enjoyed today's episode. Now let's jump to it. Mark, thanks for coming on Rise of the Next. It's good to have you on. Great to be here. Why don't we start off by telling the audience why you moved from Canada to Dubai to start your company back in 2017, I believe. Yes, of course. Um, So as you said, we moved in 2017 after just realizing how new fintech was uh, in Dubai, in the UAE and the GCC in general. We saw that there was like core problems that were still unsolved, such as investing and retail investing. People were still looking at real estate uh, or saving accounts. While in the West, we were already uh, heavily investing in stocks, ETFs. Um, So when I witnessed that gap, I realized that banks here were quite behind. So the answer had to come from a startup. And that was really motivating to see that we can, this is a problem that we have close Mm. to heart and we can actually solve. So the gap then was not so much that the investor community were not aware, rather you reckon it was the supply and that it wasn't from the financial industry's point of view of things being provided to the public. Exactly. People had the appetite uh, mm-hmm. to save, to invest. In Dubai, a lot of people move here for personal growth. Uh, of course, it's uh, an area where income still isn't taxed. A lot of people move here to jump a f- few career layers. So within that environment, it's a lot of driven young people that uh, were, were, were saving a lot, but didn't really know where to go. So we found that the wealth management was still very much tailored to the 1 million plus. Mm-hmm. Everyone was after that segment, but no one was really looking at the mass affluent Uh, the people that had considerable income, but didn't have someone looking after it. Interesting. And on that note, why don't we actually give the listeners a quick brief about your company and what it is your company does? Of course. Yeah. So Sarwa means wealth in Arabic. It's pronounced Tharwa. And we kept it simple because we want to help people uh, invest their their money to put it into the stock market, into ETFs, stocks, and now crypto as well, so that they can make their money work on the side. We started by providing a robo-advisory service where we help people diversify uh, their investments with a portfolio, with re- dividend reinvesting. And uh, last year, we shifted into a more active proposition as well in the same app, where you can also do uh, zero commission trading all in one place uh, under one app. So that's that's the new trajectory we're on mm-hmm. uh, based on a lot of the shift and the basically the comeback of active trading. 
Back in 2017, why did you pick on passive investing as the offering your company was going to focus on as opposed to active investing? Yeah, very good question. So I was 25 at the time and it's my first business. So I need to I need to go out with a bang on a, on a proper portfolio structure. And I had worked at an asset manager that was managing 80 billion in passive. And I lived the data firsthand. I saw that year uh, year after year, passive wins over the long term. So instead of putting on a similar proposition than the banks, which is a, a persona with a banker uh, that tells you, I know how to beat the market. We approached it with data and with transparency to show that over the long term, we can match the market and that's good enough on its own. That really resonated. It was different. Um, it was bold. It was transparent. People knew exactly how, many, how much fees, how much returns we were making. Until today, actually, we're the only wealth manager in the country that's displaying our historical performance online. Mm. I still have yet to see one. So all of it, we had to come out with a very different approach so that people, so that we stand out. Why do other wealth managers not share their historic performance? From my experience, there there's a few elements. The wealth management in- industry wants to be exclusive mm-hmm. and makes you wants to people feel like they're part of a club. Uh, versus uh, in fintech, we're all it's the opposite. We want to make it accessible. So by by uh, making the website quite simplistic, you'll see of it. It sort of sends a certain message mm-hmm. that they um, approachability. Exactly. Like they, there, there's a lot of that. And I also feel like it's, it underperforms. <laughs> so mm-hmm. when it underperforms, you don't want to show it that publicly because you might do well in one year, you might do well another year. By not putting it online, you can manipulate the data to show better performance. Mm, very so, true. So that's where active underperforms over the long term. And putting it online is a very difficult job. So why expand in active investing now? We basically, we realized that becoming having a 100% your passive portfolio is unrealistic. And we realize that a lot of us on the team, we love technology, we're excited by crypto. Ourselves, we work in a startup. We want to own equity in fast-growing companies. So we realize that there needs to be a mindset shift from get rich quick and get rich slow or stay mm-hmm. rich. So the passive portfolio will help you to stay rich, to, to meet your goals in a predictable way. And when we realized that, we realized that a lot of customers on the side we're trading with the likes of interactive brokers and uh, outside of the Sarwa platform. So we realized what, and a lot of us started asking us to move that over into one app to have their speculative bets as well as their long-term investments. And mm-hmm. that's what we, we did. So it was very much a bottom-up and listening to customers that allowed us and convinced us that this is a space we should enter. So speaking of listening to customers, I don't know about you, but all I hear people talking about these days is crypto. Hmm. You mentioned crypto just earlier in this conversation. Um, Have you guys now officially expanded to offer crypto on your platform as well? Uh, Almost. I would say we have an MVP uh, that allows people to have a 5% exposure into Grayscale, which gives exposure to to Bitcoin in an ETF-like fashion. And we're soon entering uh, the ability to, to buy and sell crypto directly. Uh, the way we, the reason we did that actually was it was a popular asset class. Even Ray Dalio entered and published a very good paper on his thoughts on Bitcoin and how institutions are entering it. And for us, it was really the first test as we didn't want to wait until launching Sarwat Trade to get a feel for the active proposition. Mm-hmm. So it was quite easy to put together a portfolio with a 5% exposure to Bitcoin. And it gave about 30% of our AUM that month when we launched it. So it was a very good validation of 
the importance of moving uh, and expanding to become more than a robo. So yeah, that's that's a bit of our view. In my on my personal way, I put five percent as well into it. I saw that people sometimes get stuck to be either all in or nothing and have a bit of this decision making limbo. But when you suggest five percent, it's it's not going to make or it break. Sounds reasonable, your... yeah. <laughs> exactly. So you mentioned that in 2017 there was a big gap between um, the Middle East and Western markets when it came to the average investor's exposure to ETFs and stocks and whatnot. How would you compare the appetite where you're based versus internationally when it comes to cryptocurrencies? Like what is the appetite today of uh, retail investors in the UAE around crypto? In the Middle East, exactly. Versus let's say the appetite of the average American consumer when it comes to cryptocurrency. (laughs) Yeah, Funny enough, I think they're quite similar. The, what I've learned about retail investors here is they, there's, there's a bit of this barbell approach to it where they're either on, on the opposite end of the spectrum. They're very conservative, very risk-taking. Uh, so we've seen them maybe skip a few steps around having a safety net, a diversified portfolio and go straight into crypto, mm-hmm. which is interesting. And some, some of them have done well. But it's also a dangerous approach to get into uh, and do well from the beginning because once it's one thing to get rich, but you have to maintain that wealth over time. Mm-hmm. I find that in the West, people understand the volatility uh, a lot more and the different risk profiles of an asset class. Um, so they understand how does real estate play into my wealth? How, does, uh, how, how do stocks, ETFs, crypto, and build something much more diversified? And what we're working on um, by having all these products is also bringing them together so that you can have a bit of everything and uh, with the right allocation so that you're not all in on one coin, hmm. you're not all in on one stock, but you have enough exposure to a few things. So from a business point of view, Robinhood, which is one of the most popular consumer trading apps in the US, also recently, last year actually, expanded their offering to offer their customers access to cryptocurrencies on their platform. Uh, Do you guys think that this is kind of the natural evolution of where these B2C wealth management fintech apps are going, which is that, hey, we're going to offer more than just a specialized niche, but we want to be a one-stop shop app? 100%. I think... I read this somewhere where all fintechs have the same roadmap slide when they're pitching to <laughs> the VCs and it opened up my eyes that we're all heading towards the same trajectory. Mm-hmm. It's about how fast can we get there? What's the right sequence? And why uh, are we equipped to win? And def- like basically deciding that, um, for, I'll give you an example of what mm-hmm. that means. Like initially, we were planning to launch Sarwa Save uh, before Sarwa Trade, but when trade was 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 with making a comeback. We moved our roadmap around to so that if we had launched Sarwa Save with the low interest rates, it would have been not would as it, interesting of a product. Would that have been the equivalent of a deposit account? Exactly, where you have money market, something much more safer for your three to six months of mm-hmm. expenses. Let's say you're in between jobs or you want a, a safety net. So I do believe that a lot of fintechs are rebundling financial services. And we witnessed initially the unbundling where you do one thing really well. Mm-hmm. But with Sarwa, for example, we built a really strong brand and trust around our wealth management service. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people now trust us for other products. So the adoption across other products is much faster than doing one thing. So that's a bit of the strategy we're following at the moment. What did it take to build trust? Um, a, lot, a lot of things. I think it's, it's gradual. Every event, every piece of content every conversation with a customer or PR. Uh, so it's approaching key channels like uh, PR that spreads the words, a lot of education. We approach trust by transparency. Um, you can find five to six 
uh, Sarwa events in a week where you discover different people on the team. Uh, the VC backing, for example, uh, by a Mubadala, that, that's a 250 billion fund, is a, is a big vote of confidence as well. So, mm. so every area, every opportunity of trust, uh, we're going to take it and see how do we elevate the brand? How do we, mm-hmm. um, how do we gain the customer's trust? Because in the Middle East, a lot of people actually want their money outside of it. They're not really looking at local banks as an end goal. So that plays also to our advantage where we partner with US providers, European providers that have their custody there. So there's a lot of elements both in the Mm. product and the brand to build trust. Why is it that the average Middle East resident wants their money abroad? There's been some horror stories, I would say, like Lebanon's banking crisis is a recent example Mm. where um, it raised a few eyebrows where, you know, you think of a bank as a trusted institution, but the, it started asking, all right, where is the value chain of investments? There's, it's one thing to invest in Apple, Tesla, uh, and an ETF, but where is that domiciled? Where is the, where is the custodian? So this is where these stories start to, to invite people to ask, uh, where's the, mul- the money ultimately held? Mm-hmm. And they look for more transparency and more security found. And at the same level as if you were a citizen in the U.S. or or in Europe. So with a more global access to info, people want demand the same level of of safety as if you're outside. Why not then work with work with a multi um, or rather a wealth management company that is based internationally as opposed to a regional wealth manager who will put your money abroad? Yeah, it's a great question. It shocked me as well in 2017. That's why we started Sarwa, is when we realized that um, you couldn't sign up. Uh, from Dubai or or uh, from the GCC to a Robinhood to uh, a wealth front in the US, and we started investigating, and we realized that there was a lot of regulation that prohibited this, uh, and also the risk appetite of the brokerage firms and the wealth management firms in the US is very low for the Middle East. Why? Um, there's Middle East is a higher risk jurisdiction in general, mm. and the US platforms are they're seeing so much growth in the U.S. that they're barely expanding into Canada or Europe. True. So Robinhood wanted mm-hmm. to go to Australia. They canceled it. Well, Simple went to the U.S. and the U.K., then sold both businesses and focused on Canada. So in fintech, there's a strong focus on one on owning one market or even more one city. So it's, it's different than the e-commerce model or some models where you have to own a, a, a lot of countries and expand mm-hmm. really quickly. But in the East, particularly in the business of a regulated financial services fintech like yourself, you would need to be in multiple countries or rather to, even if you're not physically in multiple countries, serve residents of multiple Middle Eastern countries for you to be a, a unicorn one day, let's say. Yes, I know. I think there is an overemphasis on um, how fragmented. It's true that the GCC is very fragmented. But I do believe there's enough, uh, the behavior is so positive, the, the wealth is there, uh, the youth is there to basically, if you own UAE and Saudi alone, for example, that's two thirds, uh, or that's $1 trillion as an addressable market when we mm. looked at it with McKinsey. So you, you really have to follow an 80-20 approach and ask yourself, is UAE enough? Is Saudi enough? I think people are a bit too quick to start talking about expansion when we can go much deeper into the share of wallet within a customer that needs, that have many, many unmet financial needs. Mm. And what Middle Eastern countries do you guys currently provide your wealth management platform to? 
So currently we're uh, focused and regulated in the UAE. Mm-hmm. However, we do have uh, customers that heard about Sarwa that are based elsewhere and sign up um, from Saudi, from Oman and the various, or Lebanon or Syria, some from various countries. Or you have expats that move back to their hometown hmm. and keep their Sarwa account and just notify us of an address True. change. So that's one thing that was really key in designing a platform here to plan for expats. These people want to move back and are concerned that um, once they move back and they still use a startup based in the UAE. And that's what that that's why we built a global platform as well. And you mentioned earlier that a lot of fintechs have the same roadmap. What do you think, other than building trust, is a key factor for a fintech to win in the in the space of wealth management? Trust is a big one. I think timing um, is really, really key that you're the first mover because that gives us a lot of time to understand the market, roll out features that are unique to the Middle Eastern investor. Customer support is really, really key. Mm-hmm. That's one thing we love differentiating on uh, mm-hmm. where we like to go where other players don't like to go, such as WhatsApp as a channel. Mm-hmm. So 50% of our conversations are on WhatsApp. Interesting. Which is huge. Mm-hmm. So this is the, the type of ways you build trust because you just start making things a lot easier. The account opening takes a few minutes instead of a 30-minute application and mm. Even like the discussion with a human uh, is is an opportunity because it, sometimes in Dubai with the bank it's it turns into paperwork fill, uh, you're filling out paperwork for 99% of the time and covering maybe one question around your account. When you automate all the paperwork, that leaves so much more room in a 30 minute discussion to actually discuss investing uh, and educating. So you very much then keep the customer in mind and particularly the Middle Eastern customer and their habits, their local habits. Exactly. Speaking of keeping the customer in mind, um, I know that Robinhood was was recently under fire for employing a lot of gamification tactics in the design of its app as a way to really tap into consumer behavior. How do you see that being managed and employed here in the Middle East? Yeah, it's a a very good point. And that's one thing where we're avoiding. There is, however, the element of personalization that without gamifying it as much, mm-hmm. you know, we were talking about Netflix uh, earlier, but I love Netflix's way of doing it. So for example, I noticed that they won't tell you, watch this movie, it's an 8.8 on IMDb, but it'll tell you based on what you've watched before, you have a matching a match score of like 90%. So mm-hmm. it's a good fit. So, you, so this sort of model is very interesting where you personalize the experience of what an investor is seeing what they have access to, to to trade without necessarily making it addictive. And also as a company, we don't track logins as much as we we could. Mm-hmm. We're not really after screen time or logins. We actually tell people log into your server maybe once a week, once every two weeks. Um, so we also, the way we track our metrics internally dictates uh, the customer behavior. Because if you were tracking number of logins, number of uh, time they're spending on our app, we're going to want to see these numbers grow. Why is daily check-in a warning sign? Because uh, when there's a lot of volatility, let's say, let's go back to March 2020, the market was going up 10% and down 10% mm-hmm. uh, in the same week and sometimes three times. That's very destructive for your emotional well-being to see your mm. portfolio swing so much. That will eventually make you a worse investor because uh, you start having FOMO, you start having... Uh, a lot of thoughts about you seeing your wealth go down like that. 
Fair, I would say, when it comes to passive trading. But when it comes to active and trading, um, I do understand that people kind of tune into market news daily. They want to see what's up with the stocks and they may glance at their portfolio if, without necessarily actively trading daily. Yeah, there's a right balance, as you said, mm-hmm. like the daily news and especially when it's uh, in a few minutes or in a podcast is, is, is really fun. And it's, it's, a, it's very intentional as well, where you put it as part of your morning routine. I love that concept. However, if you gamify it too much, it can end up being the sort of reflex when you take your phone and, and click an app without even thinking about it. Instagram, so that's we, yeah. <laughs> for me at least. Exactly. So that's where we want to avoid being uh, something like that because mm-hmm. ultimately it will hurt uh, behavior. And we, mm-hmm. want comp- we want people to back themes and um, ETFs and stocks that they believe in in the long term. So, so unlike other platforms, we actually want people to make money. And I know it sounds controversial or, uh, or silly, but a lot of fintechs in the investment space don't necessarily have that in mind. Mm-hmm. But over the long term, this is why we believe we will win because people start to get it. They start to see their money go up and they refer their friends. They, they become advocates of of seeing it firsthand. And that in turn builds the trust that you were alluding to earlier. Exactly. Perhaps as a closing question, Mark, what are some of the challenges you're facing in the market um, or some things that you keep in mind in particular when it comes to growth in this market? I think it's just the amount of things we want to roll out, the amount of uh, what we call like technical debt. Uh, we There's so many features, so many opportunities to to work on, but eventually we have to be much more realistic and focus on a handful of things that are going to uh, be the most impactful. Uh, maybe that's true for a lot of startups, but I feel like in the Middle East specifically, I see a lot of founders that are a bit understaffed on the tech side. And um, that's one challenge that we've been constantly prioritizing, focusing on the most impactful projects. Interesting. Well, I think these are good, good problems to have when there's so much to do that you just got to go and seize yeah, the opportunity. Yeah, it's a good way to look at it. Mark, thank you for your time. Thank you, sure. Thank you for being on the show. Awesome. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you subscribe on wherever you're listening to this so you can get notified as soon as new episodes are released. You can listen to this episode on all major podcast streaming platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts, as well as our website, The Global VC, which you can access at 500.co. Until then, you can also stay up to date with 500 Global by following us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all with the handle at 500 Global. That's all for me today. I'll catch you all on a future episode of Rise of the Next by 500 Global. This podcast is intended solely for general informational or educational purposes only. Under no circumstances should any content provided as part of or any such programs, services, or events be construed as investment, legal, tax, or accounting advice by 500 Startups Management Company, LLC, or any of its affiliates, 500 Global. Pfeiffer Global makes no representation as to the accuracy or information in this podcast. And while reasonable steps have been taken to ensure that the information herein is accurate and up-to-date, no liability can be accepted for any such error or omissions, and 500 Global accepts no responsibility for any loss which may arise from reliance on the information in this podcast. Under no circumstances should any information or content in this podcast be considered as an offer to sell or solicitation of interest to purchase any securities advised by 500 Global or any of its affiliates or representatives. Further, no content or information in this podcast is intended as an offer to provide any investment advisory service with regard to securities by 500 Global. 
Under no circumstances should anything herein be construed as fund marketing materials by prospective investors considering an investment into any 500 Global investment fund. Under no circumstances should any statistics, quotations, or other content be interpreted as testimonials or endorsement of the investment performance of any 500 Global Fund by a prospective investor considering an investment into any 500 Global Fund. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements which involve risks and uncertainties, and actual results may differ materially from any expectations, projections, or predictions made or implied in such forward-looking statements. This podcast includes content delivered by an independent third party that is not related to or controlled by 500 Global. All views and opinions represented in the podcast by such third party are their own views and opinions and do not represent those of 500 Global. 500 Global makes no representations as to or guarantees of specific outcomes from attending or relying on the contents of the podcast.